Good evening to you all. Is the sound in the back all right? I'd like to start this talk with a story of how I would sometimes spend Saturday afternoons when I was a child. So, on Saturday afternoon, not every Saturday, but probably at least once a month, I would be taken by my mother, usually it was my mother, and we would go to our local church, and I would go into um, a conversation with the priest, and I would tell him what I had done since the last conversation I had with him (laughs) that was unsavory. So this would be... um, Usually along the lines of, I fought with my sisters, (laughs) you know, I disobeyed my parents. Um, One time when I was uh, being really bad, I I had to tell that I took a bunch of quarters from my father's, top of my father's dresser because I wanted to go ride horses. So, mostly this was petty crimes, right? But nevertheless, there, there was something about having to tell another human being some of the things that I had done that I knew weren't good things to be doing that brought a certain kind of consciousness to the mind about what we might call sila. And it was actually a pretty sophisticated investigation because you had to not only you know, say what you had done, but how many times you did it. I used to kind of round it, round it off. <laughs> but, you know, part of, part of what was uh, also required was, you know, the priest would want to know, like, did you know that was wrong? Did you know that was wrong? And I would have to acknowledge as a, as a well-trained Catholic child that I did indeed know that it was wrong. And then um, he would sometimes ask, well, did you do it intentionally? Did you do it by accident or did you just sort of, you know, accidentally wind up with those quarters (laughs) in your pocket? (laughs) No, I swear I found them on the floor. I didn't know who they belonged to. So it was pretty sophisticated. So th- then the understanding was, you know, part, this was part of the, the process of expressing what you would call remorse for these actions. And then the priest would give you uh, what was called a penance, but it was kind of an act of restitution. So usually you would have to like say certain prayers like, you know, you know five Hail Marys and two Our Fathers. And you know, if you'd been really, really, really bad, you might have to say a whole rosary. Um, but it was really interesting because in, in walking out of there, one of the things uh, I always felt was 
a certain sense of relief, a sense that something had been um, wiped clean, that there was a certain kind of way in which I was starting again without being burdened by these particular things that I had done, that I had in certain kind of way addressed them and had released them. So imagine, if you would, if there was actually no way to be discontinuous with past errors or harm. So this would be where error would lead uh, inexorably to more error and one harm leading to repetition or retaliation. And on and on it would go with no way to stop it or to rectify it and no way to clean it up. So once damage or harm was done, it would resonate and it would keep resonating until it eventually died out just due to entropy, but it could have a very long half-life. So it's a very interesting thing to me that many spiritual systems and many cultures uh, themselves have ways and means to support what's called forgiveness. Because there's an understanding that forgiveness allows for, for discontinuity with suffering, and it helps us to let go of fire. But when we're talking about this topic of forgiveness, it's important to be clear about what we mean when we're talking about it, because there's a lot that can be read into or packed into that particular word. So some of the different words that come up for people when they, they are thinking about forgiveness are actually in opposition to each other, seemingly in contradiction to each other. So you could say maybe your association means forgiveness is accepting and letting go. Or maybe what comes up for you is regret and remorse, uh, guilt and shame or resistance, anger, withdrawal, rage, fear, judgment, condemnation, freedom, peace, acceptance, renewal, reconciliation, or maybe it's more like duty, obligation, putting on a false face, denial, making nice, or maybe it's liberation, detachment, and release. So those are all words that are potentially read into this one word, forgiveness. So maybe I should clarify what I think it means or how I've come to understand it. So for me, forgiveness is the process, and it is a process, of developing a skillful, unstuck relationship to the past harmful actions of ourselves or others. This involves choosing the intention to forgive in order to end a suffering relationship to the story, to the people involved, and to current arisings which are related to it. You know, there are a lot of reasons to practice forgiveness and a lot of reasons why it has to be an actual practice because it can't just be 
an act of will. You know, if we, we consider the first noble truth, there is suffering in life. Sometimes we cause it. Sometimes we have suffering inflicted upon us by others. And sometimes both things are true. Sometimes we're directly responsible for our own or others' suffering. And sometimes it just happens in the operation of life. Right? The driving at a reasonable speed and the, the hitting of an unexpected patch of ice, the skid, the accident. It's an interesting thing to me that our body-mind systems are actually geared to notice suffering. This is part of our survival mechanism. And we're geared to notice it and to try to avoid it. But there's an interesting thing about how we're designed in that the way we sometimes respond to injury and suffering is to never let ourselves forget it which in effect is keeping it alive. But this isn't a matter of fault for us because some of this is biologically hardwired. So for instance, we know that difficult memories are stored in a a different way than non-traumatic ones. So they're stored with a lot of alarms and flashing red lights that tell the the body-mind to watch out, you know, take care. It might happen again. And so the result can be a kind of easily startled, easily revived, uh, freeze, anger, fear, anger response when something even remotely associated with the original event occurs. So it's almost like the body-mind system is saying, you know, don't forget, don't forget, you better remember be on guard, you know, you better hold on, you better be prepared, it could happen again, it could happen any time. And yet, to keep our past suffering alive to help prevent future suffering is a suffering in and of itself. So how can we break the hold of suffering and our attachment to it? How can we actually open the mind to the possibility of freedom of living in the present with wisdom, with the past taking its place as the past. And the answer to this is the practice of forgiveness. And you can see the wisdom of it because unskillful actions, whether they're our own or somebody else's, can create a kind of cul-de-sac that where we're locked into an unwholesome relationship with the present suffering caused by those deeds. So there can be a kind of unskillful fusion to the very source of this suffering, whether it's a person, an event, or an action. So there needs to be some sort of way, some sort of practice to help us break loose from this round and round of dukkha, which can sometimes seem to defy the law of impermanence with its stickiness. Without the capacity to move forward, to let go and let things change, we can feel bonded to our most painful experiences, 
closed around them and defined and limited by them and really stuck in all that. So in the Dhammapada, the Buddha talks about this very state. He talks in a a verse called Choices. He says, uh, look at how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. And the Buddha says, live with such thoughts and you live in hate. So forgiveness is the way out of this state of repetition of suffering. The way to begin again to unstick what has adhered to suffering and judgment. A way to thaw the things that have been frozen and to begin to let things move again to release. A way of opening options, a way of opening choices other than being chained to a cycle of reactivity to a memory of a past experience. So a first important principle in forgiveness is to realize that it's a process. It's a process. So it's not an act of will because that doesn't seem to do it in and of itself. Oh, I'll just let go. Oh, I'll just let go. Oh, I'll just let go. I don't mind. I don't mind. Oh, I'll just let go. Where internally, it's all there. So it's not an act of will, but the intention to forgive is essential to begin the process. And that intention is a part of a decision supported by wisdom, a choice. And the decision is to no longer attach to the painful present results of the unskillful actions of ourselves or others. So this comes from a place of understanding that it's in our interest to let go, to no longer insist on ignoring a truth or telling ourselves the story in a way that gives us so much suffering. So it's a process It involves a decision born of wisdom and a certain kind of intention. But timing is another really important piece of this too because we have to be ready for this undertaking. So in order to be ready for this kind of undertaking there needs to be enough stability of heart and mind and enough sense of safety to really undertake the challenge of this particular practice. So sometimes it's really premature to consider this. You know, sometimes we're still too involved, we're still experiencing the original injury, we're still bleeding literally or figuratively. So when this is the case, then we really need to tend to ourselves and to restore our safety and our own sense of uh, well-being first. And, you know, entering into this process can be very gradual. So we could actually begin it by saying something like, okay, I'm going to entertain the possibility that I might at some point consider maybe forgiving. 
So that's a step. And it's a very big step. I might at some point maybe think about perhaps. It's just the initial tendril of the mind moving in the direction of release, of being able to let go. So another thing about forgiveness is there's an important piece about acknowledging error wisely. Acknowledging error wisely. So it doesn't mean denial or papering things over. It doesn't mean that we minimize the damage done or blur accountability. So to the contrary. You know, if you, if you really look at what often goes on in situations where harm has been done by ourself or harm has been done to us by others, often it's a, the case where basic sila, the basic principles of non-harming were forgotten or ignored. So then the unskillful actions of body, speech, and mind came forward and that's the source of the harm. So it's important to be clear about responsibility. You know, acknowledging what we've done in ignorance or what somebody else has done. It's important not to let harm go unexamined. So we can learn to avoid harm by considering how unskillful actions arose in the first place, what the causes and conditions were that led to the wrong action. In other words, to bring the the power of reflection forward in order to seek understanding. And uh, the Buddha talked about this uh, in a middle-length discourse uh, called Advice to Rahula. And my own reading of the backstory on this is that Rahula got caught taking quarters off his father's dresser. <laughs> but something happened and you know, you get this feeling that he kind of got like marched in to talk to his father, given the nature of the conversation that, that then happened. And the Buddha was talking about um, to his son that, and he said, in order to purify thought, word, and action, it, we need to recognize and admit mistakes. And interestingly to me, he encouraged him to acknowledge the unwholesome action to his teacher and the actual words that he uses to open it and then to undertake restraint for the future, to open it. To open it with his teacher, which sounds a little bit like confession. So, you know, maybe these spiritual um, ways of looking at these things have overlapping elements. Now, it's an interesting thing being on retreat, being on deep retreat, and most of you have been here for five and a half weeks. So you're in there. And there have been many, many things that have arisen and passed away, many mind moments that have been uh, been there. And it's really common in deep 
<clears throat> retreat to have memories arise of unskillful actions that we've done or harm that's been done to us by others. And this is actually part of the process of purification of mind. It's not like we go in there uh, looking for this. At least that's not <laughs> what we tell you to do. I don't know, maybe you do. But it's not like we, you go in there looking for this, but it definitely does come up. So in the case of our own unskillful actions, we can identify what we did that was unskillful. So a generic sense of guilt is not necessarily what I'm talking about here. But by opening to the harm which a particular action or set of actions caused, we can allow ourselves to feel why we want, don't want to do anything like that again. And, you know, the feeling of remorse and resolve with a sincere heart not to repeat our error is very wholesome. So in order to make this kind of renewed commitment to non-harming, we need to let register the painful nature of the outcome of unskillful actions. And this remorse that I mentioned really focuses on the unskillful nature of what was done. And when you hold this wisely, it results in a resolve to do differently in the future. So that's wise acknowledgement. And you know, when we come off retreat, or when we're in the real world, running about, it may be appropriate to take specific steps to refrain from and to protect from future harm to ourselves or others. So there's a certain kind of way, for instance, um, that it may be wise to get treatment for addiction or to join you know, a 12-step or recovery program of some type if substances or compulsive behavior was part of it. You know, if there, there's psychological issues or uh, childhood history that's resulted in learned behavior that's causing harm for self or others, it could be really skillful, really wise to undertake psychological investigation about the roots of those particular behaviors as a support. You know, mindfulness is a tremendous, tremendous support for any type of inner investigation. And it's also true, it's not the only tool in a wise person's toolkit, right? So it's necessary, but sometimes not sufficient to really get at some of the deep-rooted personal patterns that cause a lot of suffering. So, if it's appropriate, sometimes we could make amends or restitution or allow someone else to apologize or make amends to us. Releasing the kind of tie that we might have to somebody that has the nature of hatred or fear or resentment, guilt or shame. Now this amends and restitution piece, this is not always appropriate. 
sometimes if, you know, we've really been a, a source of harm to somebody else, they might just be pleased to never hear from us again, right? Sometimes somebody who may, has, may have caused harm might not be somebody you really uh, would be wise to be in continued communication with. It might be better actually overall to not engage in that kind of dialogue with them. But these are wisdom questions, right? So let's talk about a particular kind of way that taking responsibility for our actions isn't skillful. And that is when we use our, our failings, our um, things that we've done that are not skillful as proof positive that we are bad and worthless human beings. Right? I did this thing and it was unskillful and this person was hurt and this person was harmed. Or sometimes on retreat it can even come up in, in the form of, oh God, I'm having these horrible thoughts about X, Y, and Z and I see my mind is so mean. And I, I, you know, I'm having all these hateful thoughts or I'm having all these uh, you know, critical thoughts or I'm having all these competitive thoughts or I'm having all of this, whatever it is. Well, if we take our moral failings or our suffering states of mind as proof positive we're bad and worthless human beings, it's not skillful and it's also kind of self-centered in a way, right? So instead of becoming clear about what kind of behaviors of body, speech, and mind we need to change or want to change, and taking responsibility to do so, whether that's by practice or by uh, restraint or by other means, we kind of collapse into a reverse narcissism, you know, making it all about me. Oh, I'm so bad, I'm so worthless. So, you know, the understanding within uh, the Buddhist system is that shame and guilt are actually suffering states and when we relate to them in unwholesome ways, they actually undercut the real work, which is the work that needs to be done to liberate the mind and actually avoid future suffering. So getting caught in guilt and shame disempowers the mind because it, the mind loses confidence in its potential to evolve towards greater wisdom. So it's not like these, these states may not arise. But the question is, can the mind see them as suffering states and not buy into an ownership relationship to them, not take them on as a self-label of who we are in our totality? So if you think about it, you know, our ignorance is really only remedied through a process that illuminates our delusion, right? So if we are to become wise, we need to embrace with metta this imperfect being who has caused harm from ignorance, better known as ourselves, all of us. That's the only way it can happen. So 
So assume we are working with forgiveness. We've, we've made the choice. We've set the intention. We're in the process. We have to understand that it can be a process where we meet in a recurrent kind of way aspects of the whole cycle. The remembering, the arising of the emotions, um, the feelings of responsibility or the feelings of anger. It's not as if we forgive once, especially with uh, deep harm, and then it's over with. So we can still experience the continued arising of anger, sadness, fear, remorse, or guilt. So then the process is to learn to work with these with love without closing around these difficult feelings or identifying with them. So these are a kind of karmic residue. You know, it's almost like um, what's called space junk, you know? It's still orbiting from an initial collision that's now over, right? Every once in a while, you kind of like go through the field again and it's similar kind of things. But if we're committed to work with these arising difficult states in a way that supports our liberation, we develop more skill and we begin to cut through the suffering that's there in relationship with them and with the identification with them. And here again, you know, you can see the value of getting additional support and training in methods like uh, somatic experiencing, if there's trauma involved, to assist the body and mind in letting go. So let me talk a little bit about reconciliation. Reconciliation. So I'll give you a definition for that one too. Um, So in my mind, I hold this as an attempt to repair and reestablish relationship between or among the parties involved in a situation of harming. So there's some famous examples of this. For instance, um, after the end of apartheid in South Africa, there were what are called truth and reconciliations commissions that were set up in the country And the understanding was if people who had been involved in the violence of uh, apartheid, you know, the the many harms that had been inflicted on protesters and things, um, including fatalities and many of them, if people were to come forward and actually disclose what they had done and uh, tell the, the truth panels what had been done and you know, open up about what they knew, that they wouldn't be criminally prosecuted. And so, you know, this was part of what South Africa did to try to keep the country from uh, moving in a a, a violent, uh, polarized manner in the aftermath of the end of apartheid. It was their idea, like, well, we got to get it all out. We've got to get it on the table. People need to take responsibility for it. We need to, uh, but, but, but we don't want to, you know, punish the people who are truthful. We're going to see if we can find a way 
to weave the community back together in some sort of way. And, you know, Nelson Mandela, of course, was a big part of this. And he himself modeled reconciliation with his former captors, going so far as to actually invite one of them to come to his inauguration as president of the country. So, realistically, some of these efforts have had some success, and in some cases they haven't worked. The conditions haven't been there for them to really fulfill what was hoped for. So this reconciliation thing is not easy work. And sometimes, at least in the short term, it seems like it could not be possible. And yet it's important on a collective effort to continue with thinking of ways in which these harms that are caused between groups can be healed, can, can be bridged, while the truth of the harm is acknowledged. So locally, you know, we're all here on land that are, that's part of the historical home of the Nipmuc people, native people. And, you know, mostly they're, they're gone from this land, but not completely. And in the adjacent town, on the road that, that runs by the front of IMS, if you went, kept going another five miles, you would find a, a group of people who are now the legal owners of land here who are turning a parcel of it back over to the Nipmuc people for a cultural center. So is that the end of it? Well, no, how could it be? But it's an acknowledgement. It's a step in the right direction. So, you know, sometimes reconciliation works, sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes there are cases where it might actually be inadvisable and unwise. So there's not really a rule about it. The principle is beautiful, the intention is beautiful, and then there's the practicalities of it. For instance, I have, um, I've seen situations where people who have been in uh, situations of abuse of a domestic nature where the person who is on the receiving end of it has been encouraged by family members or religious members, uh, authorities, etc., you know, to basically forgive and reconcile. Well, you know, in some cases, this might eventually be a possibility if there's a lot of work being done by the party who's, who's uh, dealing it out. But in most cases, to tell somebody that they should go and forgive and reconcile, etc., is giving really bad advice because it's not actually realistic to the dynamics of the situation. So, you know, wisdom is always a piece of this, right? Right? 
So another pe a wisdom piece that relates to forgiveness is the place of remembering. So I was talking earlier and I was really emphasizing the way the mind can adhere to suffering and to memories of harm and suffering and how it's not of benefit to ourselves to remain stuck in a suffering relationship to memories of harm and that it's important to move in the direction of being able to have more space there to have some letting go. But there is a, a place where remembrance is important too. But it's a remembering with discernment and not adhering to suffering. So if you consider our collective experience as human beings, for instance, I remember a number of years ago when the there was the, the tidal wave that hit Japan and the Fukushima nuclear reactor uh, was basically destroyed and then was having a meltdown and all those problems that came with the tsunami. In the coverage of what was going on in that surrounding area, the news reports were talking about how, like hundreds of years before, the people in the local village had created these stone markers and had placed them very carefully with an intent that they be there permanently hundreds of feet above the shore and where people later built houses. And the marker said something like, you need to know that when, it, when the waves come, they come up this high. Don't build <laughs> down there, right? So from these historical experiences, these historical tragedies, it's not about forgetting, it's about not forgetting. Never forget. You know, what were the lessons learned? What do we have to remember? So there are important things that we need to know, things that have happened in our country, things that have happened with our group of people, people that, things that have happened in our family, things that have been part of our experience. But, you know, can we tell the story, but can we tell it with some love? You know, there is multi-generational trauma. There are historical harm and revenge cycles. And to change the rules which required a blind response of a deeply conditioned and unskillful nature to these, these experiences can help liberate us all. So, in closing, we can really let our mind rest in some particular truths, which are all beings have the potential to purify their minds. And this can't be lost no matter how many obscurations there may be. This potential 
belongs to us. We don't lose this potential by any of our unskillful actions and other people do not lose it by their unskillful actions. So this potential is true for all of us. Another point, which is a a familiar phrase from the equanimity meditation, all beings are the heirs to their karma. So we and they are always planting seeds that will arise in our mind streams and in our lives. And it's in our own interest to plant the seeds of our own happiness and well-being and to let go of resentment, to let go of what ties us to suffering. All beings, unless fully awakened, cause suffering to themselves and others through ignorance and the actions flowing from it. So all of us have been on both ends of this and will continue to be so. The past is gone. All things are impermanent. A bell once rung cannot be unrung but we can deal with its echo in the present in a way that minimizes the suffering of ourselves and others. Aversion is unpleasant and painful. To live in hatred and resentment is to forego our own happiness. Letting go is true peace. As the Buddha said in the Dhammapada when he was juxtaposing the two ways to relate to the suffering caused by harm. He said, look at how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. So this is my reflection on the application of the, the Buddhist teachings to the topic of forgiveness. So should you undertake this practice for yourself, then undertake it with some kindness and some patience and out of goodwill for yourself and all beings. And don't be disturbed by your imperfections. They're just temporary, really. May the merit of the practice that we've done together be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.